This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Lale Arikogli with another episode of Women Who Travel, a podcast about exploring the world and where we share all sorts of transportive stories. Today, I'm talking to 21-year-old ornithologist Maya Rose Craig. A student at Cambridge University, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Bristol at just 17 for her Black to Nature organisation an initiative that campaigns for equal access to nature, especially for communities in the UK that historically have been excluded from the countryside. Maya's love of the outdoors, and, of course, birds, is thanks to her parents, Helena, whose family is from northern Bangladesh, and Chris from Liverpool. My parents were very good at sort of phrasing it like a treasure hunt or something like that, where it was like a big adventure... She started jotting down all her observations during their travels, which eventually turned into her blog, Bird Girl. Now, that blog has turned into a book, Bird Girl, Looking to the Skies in Search of a Better Future. Part travelogue, part family memoir, Maya recounts birdwatching across every continent while exploring the dynamics of her own family and how their mutual obsession held them together through challenging times. One of the first bird species to fascinate Maya the sandpiper. I spend a lot of time talking about the spoon-billed sandpiper in the book for a few reasons. Like, I think, for me, sort of personally, it's almost a bit of a flagship species, but it's essentially a critically endangered species of bird that breeds up in the Arctic tundra in Russia and then every year migrates down the side of Asia, so, like, down the coast of China and that sort of direction, over Thailand, and then it's sort of it winters in mudflats in places like Bangladesh and Thailand and things like that. And it's also an, just an adorable looking bird. It's like very small, very fluffy, has literally a spoon shaped bill that it uses to sift its food out of the mud. And at one point there were about 200 birds left in the world, which is ridiculously low numbers. And it looked like they were going to go extinct, basically. And it was just this amazing story of loads of different international organisations coming together and working to help it and to try and increase the numbers. And the numbers have gone up. It does look like it's slowly getting better in the last few years. But the spoonbill sandpiper was actually the reason I went on that trip to Bangladesh in 2015. 
I love going to Bangladesh. It's so beautiful. And it was just it was just such a special bird to be in. You also talk a lot about how confusing it can be to have dual identities, both British mm-hmm. and Bangladeshi. I am British and Turkish, so I get a little bit of what you're talking about. And it seems like that trip gave you a lot of clarity, both in terms of your own identity and also finding people like you who were into birding. Yeah, that was an incredibly special trip for me, actually. I went to Bangladesh. That would be in, when I was 13 in 2015. One of the things I was getting hit with over and over again is like, oh, you know, there are just certain types of people who can't engage with the outdoors, aka not white people, basically. I was hoping you could just describe a little bit about what Bangladesh feels like and looks like to you and why you love it so much. Yeah, absolutely. I've gone back a bunch of times. Things like driving through all the old tea plantations. We spent a lot of time in like national parks and like walking through the forest and just seeing really cool birds and it was amazing. But also we went down south to the mangrove forests called the Shundabons, which I think they're vaguely known by tourists because you do occasionally see tigers there, but we went for birds, obviously. It's completely water-based and we just spent five days living on a boat, sort of motoring between all of these small rivers in the daytime sort of being punted you know through these really really narrow ravines through this beautiful forest and it was just really pristine and really amazing but I do think one of the most exciting moments when we were there wasn't the birds it was when we found a pug mark a footprint from a tiger we didn't actually see one though yeah really love it there and I always will I think crisscrossing the world in search of the world's some 10,000 bird species quickly turned Maya Rose into an experienced traveler Birding isn't just a hobby or a vacation activity to Maya. It's part of everyday life. I get loads of people asking me all the time, like, how do I become a bird watcher? What equipment do I need to buy? And it's like, you don't need a pair of like really fancy binoculars or like really fancy outdoor clothes. Loki, you don't even really need to know what you're looking at. What bird watching boils down to is like the joy of being outside and the joy of like, appreciating birds that are around you and it's from that love that people start to get really weird and obsessive about it and they know all the songs I know lots of people know all the Latin names and things like that, which is crazy to me. But like the starting point is just enjoying seeing what you can see. You mentioned the songs and I might be putting you on the spot here, but do you have a favourite bird song? I'm really, really rubbish at bird songs and I always have been. And I always used to spend so much time like on YouTube listening to videos and it just doesn't stick. But I think actually... Probably my favourite bird song. I feel like this isn't very exciting. but yeah, like it's, during, all, it's all exciting. I talk a lot in the book about going to all these like really exciting foreign places. And like the birds there are fantastic. But I think during the pandemic, I had such a moment where like I was in my house, I was at home and I just completely fell in love with my local 
nature again. The UK gets a really bad rep. People always complain about how like boring and brown all our nature is, which is it's not. But anyway, for me, it was literally just like watching the birds and the nests and like l- hearing the dawn chorus when it woke me up in the morning and stuff like that. And so I think like one of my favourite songs these days, and it helps because it's one of the few that I can also identify, is a wren, just because it's this tiny, really dumpy brown bird that sort of is likened to a mouse. It sort of hops around at the bottom of hedges in the UK, and it's probably not the most exciting thing to look at, but considering it's only maybe a couple inches, maybe it's only a few inches long, like it has the loudest song out of any of the garden birds and it has this rattle that just sounds like a machine gun. And it's like, it's so identifiable. And I love wrens in general. And I love that they're shouting over all of the other birds in the morning. And it's just, it always makes me smile when I hear it. So that's probably my favourite. It's just an English garden bird. Love a wren, I have to say. After the break, Maya refers to herself as a twitcher. If you're enjoying this episode, make sure to check out the rest of Women Who Travel and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. The twitcher, a very British word for a birdwatcher, trying to spot as many different species as possible. It's sort of like a train spotter or a country counter. In terms of twitching... It comes down a lot to like numbers and how many rare birds people have seen and people keep lists and all of these sort of things. And lots of people I know, it sort of gets down to like how many birds you've seen in a year, how many birds you've seen in your life. I have, I think, an anecdote about when my mum was first introduced to my dad and someone goes like, oh, careful, he's a twitcher. And she doesn't know what that means and she wonders if maybe it's something to do with drugs or something like that. And then I think... There's a line where it's like, oh, and she found out it was something much worse than that because it meant that he was this obsessive birdwatcher. Given this is a travel podcast, if there's someone who's sort of wanting to get into birding and wants to maybe travel somewhere new for the first time and pack a little pair of binoculars and a notebook and see what they can find, 
what's a place that you would recommend to them? Well, I think it depends how intense you want the first trip to be. I think a lot of bird watchers, their dream destination, it's South America, basically, and the Amazon particularly, just because of the sheer volume of biodiversity. On one of my trips to South America, I think I literally saw like six, seven hundred plus species in like a few weeks. It's crazy. But it's also like very stressful in the first day where you rock up and there's like tens of species flying around you. So I am actually going to the Amazon on Sunday night. I'm going to be on a section of the Peruvian part of the Amazon. But what are your tips for bird watching there? What should I pack? There's so much amazing wildlife in these places and it's literally it feels like just stepping out the front door of wherever you're saying you're seeing amazing things for someone who wants to just sort of get into things more gently I'd say actually you can go pretty much anywhere I mean that's one of the reasons I love birds actually is you can pretty much go anywhere and there will be birds there But I think also just taking the time on holiday to venture out of the city a bit where there will probably mainly be pigeons and like finding out just a few of the local species and things like that. And you're going to see some very cool stuff. Like I've had a few things where I was like literally had maybe 12 to 24 hours on a stopover to going somewhere else. And it's like, you know what, we're not just going to go to the hotel. We're going to go out birdwatching for like six hours and see if we can see something. Actually, a lot of places in Africa are fantastic for birding, especially more for beginners. You know, like Kenya and Tanzania and places like that are fantastic. It's funny that you mention Kenya because I got to go on an incredible trip to the Masai Mara last year and did safari for the first time. First couple of days, I lost my mind overseeing lions and elephants and hippos and all the crazy, crazy animals you get to see there. And then, not to say that I got used to them, because I didn't, but once that initial kind of shock passed, I started to notice the birds and just the sheer number of species and all with their own personalities, it felt like, and obviously calls. And at night, And in the mornings when I'd be lying in bed, it's so loud there and so much of it was the sound of birds. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I think I think about sometimes where it's like actually even for someone who doesn't think about birds, doesn't notice birds, it's like imagine going somewhere and then removing all of the birds from that and it would just be dead silence and the landscape would look so empty. I feel like so often outdoors experiences and travel in general can feel impenetrable for a lot of people due to price. And one of the big takeaways I found for your book is you're wanting for the bird watching space and community to become accessible to all. So I've been running a project for about seven years now called Black to Nature. I set it up essentially as someone who was not white, who spent my whole childhood out in the British countryside. And I never saw anyone who looked like me or my mum or my sister or anything like that and sort of as I got older I started to realize that 
in the UK at least, green spaces seemed like they were practically reserved for white middle class people. No one else was getting the opportunity to engage. And so I started this project so that I could get more kids and teenagers from black and Asian backgrounds into the countryside and sort of essentially give more people to have the opportunity to do the thing that I had loved doing so much five, ten years ago. It was literally all middle-aged blokes who had their like little notebooks and they were like checking things off, you know, and all that sort of thing. But in general, I think one of the really lovely things that I've seen is so many people who, again, wouldn't consider themselves bird watchers, but who are getting really into like photography or getting into nature in other sort of tech-based ways. I'm seeing a lot of young people engage in that way. For me, like going out and going on a walk and seeing what birds I can find, that is my form of self-care. I talk a lot in the book about sort of the mental health aspects of it all, especially in terms of my mum, who she had very severe bipolar disorder. I talk a lot about like a really difficult period when I was about 10 and like my mum got sectioned and my dad was like really stressed just trying to look after her and it sort of it felt like my parents and I weren't really together in that family unit anymore. And then suddenly, like, they'd already pre-booked this, like, really big birdwatching adventure before this all happened to, like, go away for three weeks and do all this travelling and see all these rare birds. And this probably isn't a sensible thing to do. But they just made what, again, looking back, was the kind of crazy decision to, like, haul off someone who was very, like, mentally ill at the time and go birdwatching for three weeks. It was, like, a really big deal. We're going to go to the Amazon and all this sort of thing. And then we sort of rolled up and it had just been like the worst journey together. I was like a nightmare child who hadn't slept on this overnight flight. My mum was exhausted. My dad was exhausted. And my mum in particular really struggled for the first few days of the trip. She was physically actually really, really struggling to see the birds, to be able to spot them, which was really unexpected. because She'd always been good at that. And it was just like this moment of like, oh my God, what have we done? I think I figured out as I get older, her brain is just so busy all the time. And like, she's always doing so much and thinking so much and like being forced to slow down in that way and like focus on the birds and you're not doing anything else. There wasn't any Wi-Fi, any of the places that we were or anything. And it was just like, in terms of like the physical change in her actually was really incredible, but also just on a personal level. I essentially like, I started rebuilding my relationship with my mum and my dad actually, who was dealing with a lot of like carer's fatigue. And it was just an incredibly important period. After the break, we hear from Condé Nast Traveller contributor Betsy Andrews about a bird watching trip to Bonaire. And Maya shares what it was like to share a platform with Greta Thunberg. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. 
Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. I bring my binoculars everywhere. So whenever I'm traveling, I have them and I find birds all over the place. I went to Bonaire last year because I had heard that they were going to build something called Modius Tower there. And that tower is connected to an international system that tracks birds. And they're building it there in Bonaire because it's such an important place for bird migration in the Northern Hemisphere. So Bonaire, that's B-O-N-A-I-R-E, is in the Dutch Antilles. It's Leeward Island in the Dutch Antilles, and it's pretty far west. So it is west of the islands that we think of as the Caribbean. It's very close to Venezuela. Bonaire was first colonized by the Spanish, and they basically cut all the trees down. And Bonaire is a bit of a desert island, and there is a rehab center for yellow-shouldered parrots there. This is an endangered bird on Bonaire. There's a national park in Bonaire that's sort of like being in the southwest of the United States. I mean, there are cactus there with these big arms, and it feels like the desert, and yet it is right next to the ocean. So the Spanish created a desert, and then the Dutch followed them. The Dutch were looking for salt for preserving herring. Well, the salt that the Dutch mined is now mined by the international company Cargill, and there are huge salt flats there. And they're filled with flamingos. And some of those salt flats are blue. Some of them are white. Some of them are pink. And that depends on the level of salt in them. The pink comes from algae and then shrimp. And then the flamingos eat that, the algae and the little shrimp, and they turn pink. (laughs) I met baby flamingos at a rehab center. And those baby flamingos were sort of whitish and grayish, but from their diet, they turn bright pink. So, you know, this human-built environment of the salt flats have become this protected area for the flamingos. The flamingos particularly have had a hard time. The thought on that, although it hasn't been yet completely scientifically proven, is that there have been episodes of sargassum. Sargasso is a kind of seaweed that blooms in the Caribbean and runoff from agriculture, which is putting more, you know, nitrogen and more fertilizer into the oceans, combined with the warmth, increasing warmth of climate change, is creating these great big sargassum blooms. And there's some connection between that and the problems with survival amongst flamingo babies. And it could be a problem.
I was spending a lot of time talking to various nature organisations and things like that. And suddenly people were interested and they did want to have those conversations. In March 2020, from what I gather, you spoke with Greta Thunberg at the Bristol Youth Strike. Just look at Bristol as an example. The other week, the plans to build, to expand the Bristol airport were cancelled. A lot thanks to climate activists. And of course, this is far from enough, but it shows that it does actually make a difference. Activism works, so I'm telling you to act. What was that experience like, sharing a platform with her in front of so many people? I think there was, what was it, like 40,000 people there? Yeah, 40 or 50, which, or 60, I don't know, they weren't sure. That was such a crazy day, for, for a few reasons. Like, I think Greta only announced that she was coming, because Bristol's my local city, and she only announced that she was coming maybe a week before. And so they only contacted me like a few days before and they're like, can you speak? And I was like, I mean, yes, but, and I was like the few no, days. No pressure, right? Like, just yeah, I was like, it has to be perfect. Like, I'm <laughs> like, Greta's coming to Bristol. And it was just such a crazy day. I think for a few reasons, like just the sheer number of people turned up. It felt like the whole of Bristol had, or no, more than that. Like the whole of Bristol was full of people visiting, coming to see her. And it was such a vile day as well. It was absolutely pissing it down with rain and it was the kind of thing where normally on a normal monthly youth strike they would have really struggled to get people there and yet tens of thousands of people had showed up and there was just such an atmosphere in the air. If you look throughout history all the great changes have come from the people. <laughs> we are being betrayed by those in power and they are failing us, but we will not back down. And it was just one of those moments for me where, like, afterwards when we were doing the march and stuff, like, I felt like I could taste change in the air, which sounds really corny, but, like, it's genuinely true. And it was just, it was so exciting. And, like, it was very cool to meet Greta as well. Like, I've met her a couple times since, but she's just, she's so lovely and so bizarrely down to earth considering everything. And I remember on that day, actually, because I was on the front banner with her, that there were literally, I mean, people lining the streets just to see her, just to get a glimpse of her. But also I remember seeing so many little girls dressed up in, like, the yellow raincoat with the plaits. And it felt like I was seeing for myself the impact that both she and just Youth Strikes for Climate in general had made on everything, but on the younger generation. It was just such a special day. I love the idea of all these little girls dressed up in Greta raincoats. That's fantastic. <laughs> Inspired by Maya's tales, I bought binoculars and a microphone along on a recent trip to the Peruvian Amazon. Thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of Women Who Travel. Next week, a road trip through the Midwest featuring stops at quirky motels and the experiences of writer, broadcaster and cultural critic Kirsten Meinzer. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hanna, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. 
Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but the Life Kit podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.